the Light Treason News, everyone. Pop culture, politics, and a sprinkle of treason. Hi, Meredith. Hello. Hi. Uh, you are so funny. So we were chatting before we started recording, and you very offhand were like, you know, it was the morning, so I, I'm watching the new Exorcist. Like, that's a normal. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm also that way, so I was like, uh-huh, yeah, obviously. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a Saturday morning. What am I supposed to do? What There's else a new movie I'm streaming. Exactly. It's finally free. I don't have to pay for it. This is just what you do on a Saturday. So usually I would jump into recommendations, but I think we need to acknowledge that Henry Kissinger is dead. <laughs> oh, we certainly do. We and really listen, do. Listen, I have for years, like many, many people on Twitter been lamenting the fact that um, he would not die. And, uh, you know, occasionally a very beloved celebrity would die and people would, uh, you know, furiously tweet, why did they have to die and fucking Henry Kissinger is still alive? So I've been waiting for this moment and as have many other people for a very long time. Years, literal actual years. Decades for some people. Um, Right. But I love how I learned about (laughs) that he had died (laughs) because I was uh, in a play at the time called uh, Appropriate. Well, it can be appropriate or appropriate. That's deliberate. It's a play on words, everybody. Did you get it? Um, And starring Sarah Paulson and Elle Fanning, like the cast is phenomenal, but mainly- I mean, a fantastic thing to have get to do to go to previews for this. Yeah, I had forgotten that it was in previews. So I'm sitting there and there were, the play's great, first of all, but oftentimes in previews, there's a lot of technical glitches. Like at one point, the curtain had come down, come down so they could do um, a scene change and then something got fucked up where it came up while they were still changing it. And the audience was sort of like, uh, <laughs> like, is this part of it? And then, like, you could just see the panic on their faces. And it's like, no, 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 this is not part of it. That was a fuck up, um, which is kind of charming. When you see something in previews, you get to see the very, very rough version of it. I like to go to previews because I feel like it's really fresh for the actors and like it's not rote yet. So they're like, you know, they were stumbling over some lines, but also the energy was really good. Um, Yeah. I mean, you're watching it while it's still fresh and they're still nailing down the choices they're going to make later. So it's kind of alive. Yeah. Yeah. There's an element of discovery for everyone. Exactly. And that's really magical to see. So I really enjoyed the play a lot. Uh, However, during the second act, I don't know if that's when he died, but that's when everybody was like <laughs> notified because by the time I got out and I took my phone off of airplane mode, you had texted me. You were like, he's dead. <laughs> I was like, what? <laughs> what? While I was waiting for the train, I could not believe it. Um, but I love the fact that he died while I was watching Sarah Paulson mother all over the stage. Yeah. I mean, just incredible stuff. I called my sister to tell her and uh, I said, Dana, Kissinger died. He's dead. And she said immediately, we got him. Like we were talking about (laughs) SEAL Team 6 taking out Bin Laden. Uh, Yeah, we did it collectively with our (laughs) snarky tweets. It finally worked, guys. Being a bitch on the internet resulted in change. Hey. This is, we all needed it. Uh, I was very pleased that someone 
in the Madison, Wisconsin subreddit posted where the Kissinger party's at tonight. Yeah, seriously. I know a lot of people had like a bottle of champagne that they were saving with his name on it for when yeah. he died. Um, like a lot of people. I feel like you know you fucked up in life if people have champagne bottles that they're waiting to drink when you die. Yeah. Somebody pointed out that if you can have a B-sides collection of your genocides. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, holy shit, you've, dude. You've done a lot. <laughs> yeah. Like Anthony Bourdain's quote about him went viral just because I feel like, especially for a lot of younger people, they don't know how evil Henry Kissinger was. Like maybe they don't know about Cambodia or like, you know, the whole history. Everything he did in Africa, yeah. like how he treated the, the Bengalis. Like right. it's, he was there's evil like for the general so idea. Yeah. <laughs> for like, like 50 years he thing. was doing. Yeah. There's a lot of people who were evil for like a handful of years or like a presidency term. He was evil for so long and did so much damage and millions of people died because of this man. So the people on Twitter who were like, guys, I don't know if it's appropriate. Shut the fuck up. Like let people celebrate when their enemies die, you know? This is one of the few, like, once again, I don't want to say few as I was about to, but uh, this is one of the times where it's okay to say, damn, thank God we're free of, of the malign influence at last. Yeah. And, you know, this is, it's such a bracing and wonderful change to see um, public opinion take on its own life. I mean, just no longer to see people that have decided that we just refuse to listen to what media and people in power say about Kissinger. Like, fine. Yeah. You guys can do your hagiographies and talk about him being an elder statesman and inspiring all of these people. But like, we know we are in fact educated on you how he did so, very bad stuff. <laughs> you just seem so out of touch when you do that shit now. Cause it's like, yeah, be, be, as evil as the internet can be, one of the you know benefits of it is that we have access to all of this information now. So more people than ever know about these crimes. So when they are spouting these hagiographies, it's like, wow, you're such an elite class who is out of touch, who's not telling the truth right now. And you're the news, supposedly. Yeah. Um, I suppose we should also say goodbye to our queen, George Santos, as well. Oh, diva down. Yeah, guys, listen. Is he a terrible person? Obviously. Is he so entertaining that Meredith and I text about him 40 times a day? Absolutely. It's like a drag race contestant was in Congress. <laughs> and he is behaving thusly. Like when he got kicked out, he it was like Jerry Springer where he was like, I don't care. Like screaming at reporters. It was amazing. It was just incredible. Like there's the level of self-delusion and also just like chaos. Chaos. It, we won't we won't see his like again. And it's obviously I want competent people in Congress. Yeah, but we're like, not gonna get that, let's be honest. <laughs> you, and that's what I'm that was literally what I was about to say. Like <laughs> knowing that there is going to be literally hundreds of terrible people in Congress at any given moment. 
I just need a few of them to be entertaining. Yes. Like <laughs> he took a baby. What what happened? We still never got a clear answer about what the fuck that was. He had a he I don't took think a we baby. know whose baby it was. I had heard that it was someone in his office, like maybe one of his staffers had their kid there or maybe oh. another representative. I don't know. But he borrowed the baby, quote unquote. And then the hilarious line was the reporter saying, who's is that your baby? And he, he said, not yet. And everyone was like, <laughs> what? <laughs> so good. And then like a week later, he was uh, feeding Lauren Boebert's grandchild on the floor of the house. I'm just like, oh my God, this is just perfect. And the endless, endless lies, like being a, a producer of the, the Spider-Man. Spider-Man. Uh, was it a musical? Was that a musical? I don't yeah, know. it was yeah. the U2, uh, the U2 Julie Tamer oh my God, Spider-Man right. musical. Yeah. It was a disaster We're- and like guys kept getting hurt. Yeah. Uh, but he, yeah. his, his lie... He's so fascinating because it's like if you're going to claim to be a producer of something, wouldn't you choose something successful that people loved? Like he chose something that was a joke to be a producer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and something if you're going to go that big and tell lies that are that very easy to verify or disprove. Yeah. Pick something that doesn't end up leaving you sounding kind of lame, frankly. Yeah. A fascinating. Fa- I mean, most pathological liars are fascinating just because I feel like if you're not a pathological liar, you can't really understand how they think. Because like the idea of telling that many lies and juggling that many lies and having to keep those lies straight makes me so anxious. Because that you have texted that to me so many I times know. in the last 11 months, just like, how, how does anyone do this? Yeah. And it's not just him. It's like anytime someone is, you know, revealed to be like people who pretend they have cancer and they don't have cancer, like stuff like that, like a big, big lie. It's like an instant panic attack for me because it's like living in a life that is a house of cards. And like, it's going to collapse eventually. Like you will be revealed as a liar and everyone will hate you but they just don't care or they no. think they won't get caught. And I'm just like, I don't understand how you live that way. No. I mean, I could, I can barely keep track of, of what I have in my refrigerator. Yeah, exactly. Like, like I barely can take care of myself, <laughs> let alone like juggle several lies and like sometimes several families, you know, like huge, huge lies. Anyway. Um, Rest in peace, Diva. We will listen to your podcast, your inevitable podcast, when it comes out. Um, and yeah, well, I'm, Bravo I'm show, convinced. Like, yeah. I know. I was thinking about that. I think I, I was even saying to a friend, I want George Santos to go on Raquel Levis's podcast. Like, oh let's just fully, I need him. Listen, he would be a good you know, co host. Let's talk about lies. Yeah, actually, that's really brilliant from a producing standpoint to have two pathological liars host a show together because I don't have faith that Raquel can string like a thought together. So this I think this podcast is going to be awful, but it would be really interesting to have them host together because I feel like he he would bring (laughs) like spice, you know? Yeah, I mean, it would be they seem in some ways to be on the same level, even though they're obviously not because like there's I'm an Arizona trash bag pathological lying and then there's like George Santos lying 
but right, different, you know, different getting Botox from a, a doctor who lost his medical license for <laughs> you, like botching butt and uh, breast enhancements. Like, oh, it's just it's it's a level of diva we can't even speak of. But one of my you're right, moments- it would be entertaining. <laughs> One of my favorite moments was, so obviously George got in a lot of trouble for misappropriating uh, funds. And one of the things he had spent a lot of money on was uh, Sephora Cosmetics. And like the day after he does this press conference and clearly has the foundation on that he had like bought because <laughs> it doesn't match the rest of like he got a shade too light. And it was just so flagrant and like a fuck you. And again, not to reward terrible behavior. We want competent Congress representatives. We're not going to get them. Um, he's just so wild that it's like, man, if we're going down in flames, which we are, it might as well be fun. Absolutely. Yeah. There's just something so good. But, you know, this is the, I look forward to whatever chaos he's going to bring to us in going forward in the future. For sure. So before you and I get to Rex, I wanted to read one from Brian. Um, just a reminder, everyone, if you're a Patreon supporter of mine, you can go to patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny and leave your recommendations in the comment section of the most recent post. I'm actually going to post again today just to update it. But Brian knows what's up and went to an old post, which you can always do if I haven't updated it. And I'll get an alert um, that you left a recommendation. So Brian writes... Hopefully it's not too late to get this before the next episode. It's not, Brian. Good news. But holy shit, Godzilla minus one is so good. The critics and fans who have been saying that this movie has easily the best characters in the franchise's history, and these are Godzilla fans saying this, mind you, are absolutely correct. I was genuinely scared for these people, and I was in tears when I thought two of them weren't going to make it. Well worth the extra $2 I paid to see it on RTX screen, which I normally don't do, but it happened to be the earliest showing available. Yeah, Brian, I've heard people are raving about Godzilla Minus One. I haven't seen it yet. I want to, but thank you for the recommendation because neither of us have seen it. But No, but I'm also very excited, and we just... I. I think we've been God. We just need more Godzilla. In I life. agree. I agree. Yeah, and um, it looks beautiful. People are so excited about it. I really want to try to see it in the theater because that feels like one of those movies you must you must see in a theater. Um, so yeah, thank you for that recommendation. I <laughs> I saw Napoleon. Everybody, speaking of uh, films you <laughs> should see in the theater, and holy shit, I. All I wanted it to be was epic and like a mess in a fun way. And it's definitely that. Like it is ridiculous. And there's been a lot of press about the historical inaccuracies, which I'm like, who gives a shit? Like, are you going to Napoleon by Ridley Scott to get an education? Like, I know our schools are bad, but if it if that's what it's come to, we're truly and epically fucked, you know? <laughs> <laughs> So I don't it's give a true. shit that Napoleon is like firing at the pyramids and that didn't really happen. It look, It's a cool shot, you know, and like I, I know this is not historically accurate. Um, I will say it's very long. It is a very, very long film and it does feel long in places. But I had a good time. I, you know, I thought the performances were solid. Um, it's, it's beautiful. It's, you know, um, an odyssey. And that's what you want from Napoleon. Yeah. 
And I want, I want my crazy. I will watch the four and a half hour version. Um, you didn't see it, can, right? No, I was supposed to go see it last weekend, um, but then I got sick and had a migraine, so I was unable to right. actually go through with it. Um, what is the exact right level of high to see Napoleon? Great question. Uh, 25 milligram edible is what I have determined. Um, with careful experimentation, I purchased a bag of edibles uh, recently that was a thousand milligram bag, meaning that uh, each watermelon uh, <laughs> edible is a um, hundred milligrams, which is way too much to do for me personally, to be like in public and functioning and uh being coherent enough to watch a film and then navigate the New York city subway system guys <laughs> afterwards. It's not as easy as you think it is. Um, so I divide each one into, f- this is like, I make everything so complicated, but I divide each one into fourths. So then I take one and that's 25 milligrams. Um, this is a, and it's very important that you're doing these experiments yes. for the public. You know, we need this. I was watching real housewives and um, Kyle Richards was hosting a cannabis night which was kind of a cool idea where a chef, a, a cannabis chef comes over and makes like beautiful meals that are infused with um, THC. And uh, like before they, they need to get consent from everyone about like what dosage they want. And these women were doing like one milligram, two milligram. And I was like, oh, I do quite a lot. <laughs> A lot. I was like, oh, I thought 25 milligram was not a lot. And I was like, oh, I, I guess if you've never done it before, it would be like, whoa, you know. But for me, yeah. 25 milligrams was like, I had like a good buzz on for Napoleon. This is, and, and I'm glad because I think, especially when there's a movie like this where you know, one, it's not the long version, and two, you know, it's not going to be great. Like, hitting that sweet spot is really important. <laughs> I agree. It's so important. And be careful, guys, with edibles because uh, they're unpredictable. You don't want to go marine down. Yeah, they're unpredictable. Um, I, I'm i fine with them, but they're not for everybody. So that's not like a blanket endorsement. Um, let's talk about May-December. Oh, my God. Yeah, this is the one that I was really excited about. I had been uh, texting Meredith that it's one of my favorite films of the year. I haven't seen uh, Poor Things yet. I'm seeing that next week, and I have a feeling I'm going to love that as well. But I really didn't expect to love May, December this much. I watched it last night uh, because it's finally it's streaming on Netflix, and I was just floored by it. I'm still trying to come up with exactly how to describe just how much I loved it and how astonished I am that it works. Like, I just can't believe like every choice that gets made, like finding the tone and then sustaining it is a level of difficulty that basically no one can pull off except Todd Haynes. Yeah. Because he's a man who like instinctively understands the power of melodrama and also like, how to dose it out. But let's sort of back up and talk about the film, you know, you jump into it. <laughs> yeah. So it's based on uh, Mary Kate Letourneau. That's her name, right? Yeah. Um, who was a teacher who, and I want to make this very clear because I've now listened to several reviews from male critics who describe what happened as an affair between a teacher and a student. 
she met, uh, and I'm forgive me, I forget his name, but she met um, Vili Falau. Yeah, is his name. Yeah, she met him when he was twelve, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. So that's rape, everybody. If you're if you're wondering uh, when a grown woman has sex with a twelve year old boy, that's rape. So it was not an affair. <laughs> Um, so this was obviously like a huge, like they got caught. She went to prison. Um, it was a huge, huge national scandal. And, uh, this is Todd Haynes sort of not only exploring the dynamics of that relationship, but also how we as viewers consume that relationship in like entertainment and true crime storytelling. So Natalie Portman plays like a Hollywood actress who is, uh, cast to play Julianna Moore, um, who is the Mary Kate Letourneau uh, person. And she's visiting them to like study them and study like specifically Julianna Moore and like her mannerisms and her, how she talks. She has a very specific lisp that <laughs> Natalie Portman is trying to emulate. And as she's staying with them um, and as they're interacting with her, um, this uh this relationship that they've propped up and they're trying they're insisting that is healthy very quickly uh starts unraveling and uh Charles Melton plays her her husband and he's phenomenal in this movie and he starts to have this realization that they don't have a healthy relationship he was way too young uh to be in a relationship with her and he just has an absolute existential crisis in this film that i think is so wonderfully depicted and as you said Meredith it could have gone wrong so badly and the the tone of this is really I think it's very very darkly funny a lot of people were confused that it got put into the category of uh, a comedy but it is a dark comedy and but also there are like incredibly sad moments too and I think that is valid and earned because you can tell they want to treat the source material with the appropriate gravitas because it's like yeah th- he was a child when she took advantage of him an actual child and and they it's just so interesting how the film by picking this moment in time to like explore how people avoid having conversations about the psychic damage they've done or that they've suffered mm-hmm. There, there are so many moments between Charles Melton and Julianne Moore where you just are having your face rammed up against, you know, into a, into a window of, oh God, they're doing it again. They're so close. They're so close. Nope. Nope. They're trapped forever. Yeah. They're going to avoid it. Like it. And I've never been a huge Natalie Portman fan. Like I think that she's talented obviously, but I've never engaged with a performance that I thought she was genuinely great in. And this is the best I've ever seen her. She's so good. And, and there's, there's such menace, like something about her being quietly and low key evil (laughs) (laughs) as both the audience stand in or as the audience stand in character. Like it's, it was just terrifying. I, was line, like, I, mean, Damn, line, I think I'm kind of oh. when she says, uh, that's what adults do is just like that's what grownups. That's do, what grownups what do. Says, yeah. 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 Which is like, even scarier. Dude. Yeah. Um, 
Yeah. There's a scene where, uh, you know, just because I feel like (laughs) everybody expected Natalie Portman and Julianne Moore to be great because they're great. Um, but as you said, I, she even exceeded my expectations. I am a Natalie Portman fan. Um, but Charles Melton was really a surprise because this is the Riverdale guy. Weird. Now he's in like a heavy hitting Oscar film. What is this going to be like? Turns out it's going to be great. Um, and I do really applaud Todd Haynes for casting him because I think the racial component of that story is super important because it's part of the reason that Mary Kate Letourneau got away with what she did. Um, mm-hmm. she targeted a, a child who was a, a person of color and she was like a little petite blonde white woman. And, you know, I think Todd Haynes clocked that that's part of this story too. And it's really important that it, this has to be like a pretty white lady and a person of color because that's part of the, the predatory behavior too. Um, but there's a scene where, you know, obviously they have a family together and, uh, he is not much older than his children and he has not had a childhood. So he's on the roof with his son and it's, it's the first time he smokes pot. And I have to say, I feel like this film is a really big, uh, pot endorsement because he starts to have an epiphany about like his life after this moment where he's like, wait a second. And he's like recalculating everything. And he's like, I don't think we do have a healthy relationship, but there's a very sweet scene with his son where he, he basically is like, I want you to be okay. And he starts crying because he's thinking about his own childhood. And then he's, I love this line so much where he's like, I don't want this to be a bad memory for you, (laughs) which is so sweet. Cause it's like, Oh buddy so much of his life is fucked up because of your relationship uh, with, with Juliana Moore. But um, yeah, I thought the tone was so, the script is so good. So good. And it was from um, Blacklist. Uh, it was one of the Blacklist scripts. Oh. I This is so terrible. And I forget her name. Let me look it up right now. Um, <laughs> she's best friends with uh, Kate Bennett. Oh. Like childhood friends. Um, you vamp and I'll find her name. Uh, yes. So um, I also want to shout out the actor who played Julianne Moore's oldest son uh, from her first family. Because, of course, she had kids when she, her character at, as a 36-year-old woman, uh, raped a child. Um, and so her oldest son, who was in school with he's the same age as joe the husband Mm -hmm. uh is he and he's grown up into a broken fail son hanging out in savannah georgia it's just so spot on like the fact that there are all of these tiny moments that illuminate the long-lasting psychic damage that occurred that it's not just their relationship is fantastic like, yeah, it's not too much. It doesn't feel like people are in like show up to just hit a certain beat. Like it's all really fascinating texture um, that I just adored. Totally. And yeah, and it's he's like, just so ugh. it's like the ripple effects of a narcissist. Yeah. Um. So it was written yeah. by Sammy Birch is <laughs> Kate Bennett's childhood friend. So sorry to introduce her that way because she's a great writer. And uh, Alex uh, Mechanic. Sorry, probably not Mechanic. Mechanic. 
And yeah, I, I love that this was on the blacklist. A lot of people had read it and were very excited about it. And it got produced, which is like the dream when you post a, <laughs> a screenplay <laughs> on blacklist, like, oh my God, it's actually being made. And not only is it being made, it's Todd Haynes and Juliana Moore and Natalie Portman. <laughs> like, holy shit, holy shit, holy shit. Um, yeah, it, it, this is a, such a good screenplay. Like if you're a fan of great writing and subtle character development, but also kind of, you know, here's a question. And this is very controversial. Is this camp? There are campy elements and moments of camp. I agree. But I think like so much of what Todd Haynes does, the story is so much more than that. And he uses his control over these concepts and, you know, to like, to hit it right in the sweet spot again, like this. So it's an idiot would say it's camp, but no, there are just campy <laughs> moments. <laughs> There's a the moment where Julianne Moore goes to their fridge and opens it. And there is like a telenovela, score that starts and like a slow zoom in on her and she goes I don't think we have enough hot dogs and then immediately cutting to Charles at the grill with just like it's overflowing with hot dogs like you absolutely have enough hot dogs so there's like very very um it's not really subtle humor but I guess it's dark humor within this story that I was laughing really hard in the theater and there were people around me who did not laugh once. So I think, Oh, there were some moments that are just fucking hilarious. Yeah, (laughs) I I agree. But I I think it's one of those things where if you're not vibrating on that exact frequency, you're like, why is this a comedy? But if you get it, you really get it. Yeah. And I think that's why Todd Haynes has been my favorite, one of my favorite directors since I was a teenager. So this is like, I'm always ready for what he's going to, serve up but I thought it just the the telenovela like the the drama like the dramatic piano stings the music is so perfect because it never you can't ever get comfortable there's never a moment where in the film you're allowed to sit with the characters long enough that it becomes like a quiet drama that's like exploring fucked up family relations because it's always pulling you out with this artificiality. And I think that destabilizing you like that makes the actual message that much stronger. Right. And there is this like meta-ness to the film, especially casting Natalie Portman, who very famously played Jackie Onassis and was doing what was ostensibly a very historically accurate accent but that was like distracting for a lot of people because the whole time you're like that is Natalie Portman doing a funny voice which Mm -hmm. is a lot of the criticism of biopics that you are watching a very famous actor play like that's just what the gig is right but it's become sort of like a Hollywood cliche that when you're a serious actor you take a role like that so there is this meta-ness of Natalie Portman poking fun at her own legacy where she is Mm -hmm. The la- the final shot of the film is her um, in a, a very bad like TV drama version of their lives playing Julianna Moore and doing her accent. And it is so funny. And she is just like <laughs> stone faced do- doing it like just I thought it was so 
great. Like, obviously, it's funny in the film, but I also just applaud her for, like, making fun of herself. Yeah. I mean, the other thing that's really great about her casting is that she's also the most famous former child actor of our specific generation, you know, and she has spoken a lot about dealing with that but she was also like wildly sexualized there's literally a whole movie beautiful girls in which the main character who's in his late 20s can't stop lusting after 13 year old natalie portman and so her like the, the sort of meta level of this very talented actor who was unwillingly sexualized from the same age as the character that she's like playing the wife of it's it adds something and it feels like that sharpness kind of comes from a place that she used her experience really well I guess is what I'm saying I know (laughs) I've said before on the show that it should be illegal to use child actors but like she said she's like I basically had nothing bad happened to me and I still think it should not have happened (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah it's it's terrible like Listen, they can be in plays at school, stuff like that. They should not be in the Hollywood system. No, not at all. Um, but also, I'm just, I really thought Charles Melton did a great job. I really, this is just, yeah. And he's, um, listen, I don't think he's going to win the Oscar. A lot of people are getting excited because he won um, the New York, uh, was it New York Film Critics? Um, yeah, Critic Circle. Critic Circle, thank you. Uh, and, he won something else too. Like he's getting some of the, the, you know, not, I don't want to say lower tier awards, but like, um, of films, uh, like film fans, like hardcore film fans are really, really favoring him. And I think it's really exciting. Anytime there's like a young new actor, it's very exciting. Um, but once you get to the Oscar level, once you're up against Robert Downey Jr., <laughs> it's a little like, I don't know. But listen, he might get that fifth slot and that would just be exciting if he got nominated, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think it would be fantastic to see him. He deserves uh, it. He deserves it. Yeah. I, I would love to watch him lose an Oscar to Robert Downey Jr. Oh, yeah. He'd be so excited <laughs> to go, you know, like, oh, my God, you went from Riverdale to the Oscars? Like, that is so cool, dude. You know, like. I know. Last night I definitely texted you and said, how mad do you think the Sprouse brother is Listen, <laughs> about this? So mad. Um, but yeah, I I highly recommend May, December. Um, it's streaming now on Netflix, so it's easier to check out. Um, did you have any recommendations before I continue or did you want to say anything else about May, December? Uh, no, I, uh, I feel like we can just keep on rolling. Okay. Uh, I saw Eileen, everybody, um, which is, it's a psychological thriller. It's very, uh, you know, Hitchcockian, um, starring Anne Hathaway in a very blonde wig. Um, and Thomason McKenzie, who she's great. And you've probably seen her in a million things. Um, and it is based on a novel, I believe, uh, which was adapted into the film. And it's about a this, like a very unhealthy, toxic relationship between two women who were working at a, a juvenile detention facility. And uh, Thomas and McKenzie is playing this. She's Eileen. She is um, the star. And 
She's like the most pathetic woman you've ever met in your life where like her <laughs> father is like a raging alcoholic and uh-oh, he's also the captain of the police force. So that's not a great combination. Uh, she is in a miserable job where nobody respects her. And then one day, this fabulous woman, Rebecca, shows up and she's a Harvard-trained psychologist and she's going to work at this juvenile detention facility and work with the boys. Um, and... Uh, Eileen like immediately falls in love with her because not only is she glamorous and sort of like the the exact object of like what she wants to be um, in her own life, but she's also conflicted with her sexuality and we see her fantasize a lot. Um, not just about Rebecca, but also there's a male guard uh, that she has like sexual fantasies about. So she's just very horny and unhappy, <laughs> basically. And... I don't want to give too much away, but there's like very Hitchcockian uh, twists in this story, very film noir twists, and it gets very dark very quickly. And I think it's pretty solid. Like, I'll definitely recommend it. Um, the performances are great. It's a little messy in places. And like, I'm not 100% clear on what happened. And uh, if you ever do see it, we can discuss <laughs> Meredith. Oh, I am 100% going to see it. Yeah, yeah. Because I love a overheated pot boiler uh-huh. with horny teens and uh, lesbianism. Yes. Like, bring bring back all of the pre-code meanness and, yeah, put Anne Hathaway in a blonde wig and make her play a Barbara Stanwyck character. Like, yes, yeah. give it. I, I need it in my life. But, like, in the third <laughs> act of this film, like, there are bombs being dropped and there is like a very hard turn um where it gets crazy and i appreciated it you know they swung hard and um i think thomason and Anne really really carry it with their performances it's a little heavy-handed in places especially her relationship with her father i was like okay we get it after a while uh, he's so so verbally abusive with her and at one point, it suggested maybe physically as well, but he's a total monster. Um, and uh, yeah, but overall, I it's really compelling. Um, also very funny in places as well. And yeah, if you just want to see two solid performances and you like film noir, get into it. Eileen, yeah. baby. I mean, going back to what you were talking about, like everything I can tell from the marketing and background of Eileen that sounds like camp. <laughs> I think, I do think Anne Hathaway's very camp in it. And like, not just because of her wig, <laughs> like she is doing the most, you know, in this film. And it really works because, uh, like I said, Eileen's life is so miserable that you do need that injection of light in it. And um, yeah. Yeah. And as a, as a sort of like perpetual theater kid, when Anne Hathaway decides she's going to do the most, she really brings it. And making um, a choice, everybody. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, she's, uh, she also makes a choice and weirdly enough also wears a blonde wig in uh, this movie Serenity uh-huh. with Matthew McConaughey. Oh, wait, I kind of um, remember this. That's, it's the movie that's completely insane because like he's kind of a gigolo slash a fisherman who's obsessed with catching this one s- super giant tuna. Um, but then it turns out that actually he exists in a computer simulation that his son yep. created in like the real world to escape his uh, shitty abusive stepfather. You guys get it, so, right? You like, get it? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Totally normal. So, but she plays his bitch ex-wife. Yeah, that's and, right. 
really does the most. And it's uh, it's spectacularly bad. But man, when they got to that twist, own way. <laughs> I was like, what the fuck? Like when whenever there's a turn like that, you're like, so many people looked at this screenplay and they were like, yep. <laughs> <laughs> They're like, yeah, people will not think that this is just an insane choice. This is it, good. It's going to it's going to work for them. Uh-huh. Yeah. People are going to be like, their minds are going to be blown. I think so many producers and directors don't realize that a twist has to make sense. Like you can't just <laughs> throw a twist in to be like, eh, like it has to in the plot make logical sense. Uh, and so many films don't do that where they're just like, uh, here's a twist and another twist and another twist. And that's a film, I guess it's like, no. <laughs> yeah. That's a and sometimes they're like, Oh, well, we can totally blow their minds if we put the twist in the middle instead of at the end. And I'm like, guys, this is not how you use screenwriting rules. We call it the like, uh, <laughs> the emerald fennel <laughs> system. What if I just throw a bunch of crazy shit in here? This is a movie, right? Sorry, guys. Right. I'm sorry. You just you've got you you fold up pieces of paper with specific plot elements and then you just <laughs> pick four <laughs> yeah. and then you have to rearrange those four in such a way that you tell a story and unfortunately those are the only four you get so like figure it out <laughs> oh my god um did you have any recommendations i don't want to just keep steamrolling ahead no no you should keep going i have been watching a lot of stuff but uh nothing that is new yeah that we haven't talked about yet Okay, uh, so I also saw Dream Scenario, uh, which is Nicolas Cage's new film. Um, it's about this, uh, again, a real loser, everybody. There's a theme in a lot of these films. Just the the biggest loser you've ever met in your life, um, who suddenly, inexplicably, uh, suddenly is appearing in millions of strangers' dreams. And... The first like third of the film is uh, him realizing that this is happening. He's a, a professor at a university and uh, but again, a huge loser that kind of makes it seem like he might be slightly successful. He's not. Um, and uh, his students start to tell him like, oh, I had a dream about you. And at first it's like, haha, weird. And then it's everybody. And it's a really uh, fascinating, interesting film. Um, that's basically about milkshake duck where it's like at first (laughs) all of the dreams are really nice or not nice. It's always slightly creepy where he's just like standing there, but he's not doing anything in the dreams. They're just like other stuff is happening. And I saw you and you were just like looking at me, but people are kind of like, ha ha, that's funny. That's weird. And then gradually the dreams become nightmares where he is attacking people. He's doing terrible things and people turn on him and hate him suddenly. And he goes from like this cultural hero to uh, they cancel him, basically. And it, the film gets heavy handed in the, like the third act where it it really is mapping onto cancel culture, where it's like his agent at one point is like, you could do like right wing podcasts. And it's like, OK, we get it. <laughs> like, this is usually the trajectory of somebody who's canceled. They become uh, right wing suddenly. Yeah. Um, but uh, Nicolas Cage is great. The dream sequences are really creepy and cool. And I just think the premise is interesting. So, like, not a super strong film, but um, interesting. And the, the performances carry it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm definitely going to watch that. I just haven't gotten around to it because we don't have any art house cinemas anymore. Um, Sad. It's cool. It's fine. Yeah. Uh, 
oh, well, I <laughs> what should can survive. you do? I've recently <laughs> been like, I go to AMC so much, obviously, because of um, I'm a Stubbs member. I don't want to brag about it, but I get sick deals from AMC. But I, I occasionally get an email from Nighthawk and I'm like, man, I miss Nighthawk. I should go to Nighthawk. <laughs> just you just need one themed cocktail while you watch a like watch a film i've been thinking about going to see renaissance Ooh, that fun. would probably be yeah that would be fun at also i bet that uh going you're going to see renaissance at the nighthawk or the alamo in south slope uh i feel like you would probably be amongst uh a lot of comrades exactly exactly went. yeah yeah um occasionally there'll, there'll be a film at alamo or nighthawk that's not at amc but it's pretty rare um but yeah, also it's just so expensive and it really, really frustrates me that they don't have their own kind of membership plan. You know, it's, yeah, it's dumb. I mean, it's it's actually dumb. Um, anyway, that's my personal grievance. It's not your fault. If you work at the Alamo, I have some friends who uh, work there and they're all great. Not your fault. Um, I also uh, highly recommend, especially if you were a fan of the original film, the Scott Pilgrim series on Netflix. Oh, I've heard really great things about that. Yeah, it's quite good. And it, it's very funny. The animation's cool, especially if you're an anime fan. I'm not, but I know a lot of people who are. And I don't have anything against it. I've just never been able... I have a hard time connecting with a lot of uh, animated films. Mm-hmm. Um, even the really good ones. <laughs> it's just like... I need to see people, I guess, to to really care about a film. But anyway, um, I th- I even thought the animation was very cool in in the Scott Pilgrim series. And what I love the most about it is, without giving too much away about the plot, it retroactively um, fixes some of the more problematic aspects of Scott Pilgrim the movie, like the fact that he was dating a girl in high school was pretty fucked up <laughs> which was always it was pretty hard to swallow that one even when it came out all those years For ago sure. I, I think even in the film they're like dude you know <laughs> but but it's especially problematic in 2023 and they go to great lengths to like address that and also like what scott's deal is <laughs> like and also he's not um by any means the star of scott pilgrim in fact he something happens and he's not there for a lot of episodes um so, you know, it's really about the other characters and uh, it is also very, very meta, but I think in a really fun, entertaining way. Nice. I'm, I may check that out. Uh, so this one, this next one is really uh, out of left field. I saw, do you remember I sent you um, a synopsis maybe, or maybe I just told you about this, that there is a film called Rubber. Yes. Yes. You did tell me about this. (laughs) I watched it. It is crazy. And I loved it. Uh, So rubber is about a homicidal car tire. And that's basically (laughs) it. You guys, it it realizes it's, it's sentient. We don't know why. Um, And it like has telegenic powers and can um, kill people. And there's this very strange aspect to it where there is uh, like a built-in audience watching this happen in the desert. 
So you have the main storyline of this <laughs> entire like rolling around, which the practical effects are really, really cool. Like the fact that they pull all of these visual tricks to make it seem like this tire is, you know, moving around <laughs> and has like a little personality. Um, and then there is this audience watching it happen and sort of commenting on what's happening as like we would be from home, you know? Um, yeah. So there's a little Mystery Science Theater 3000 aspect to it that's really cool. Um, and yeah, it's just, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just like a wild film. And I mean, it exists. It's about a sentient killer tire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, and it's definitely you know, like this is, yeah. a B-list film where like uh, the actors are not great, but I just mm-hmm. think that the direction is is very solid. Um, Quentin Depew, I'm so sorry, wrote and directed it. Uh, and to me, it's just one of those like very cool examples of like, I'm just going to say a low budget. I actually don't know what their budget was, but it seems like a low budget film. Um and specifically a horror film, just doing something really experimental and cool. And that's like why, partly why we're fans of horror, because it allows emerging filmmakers to do something really different like this. Yeah. Yeah. And I, one of the reasons why I watch so many movies that I know are going to be not great is that sometimes it's just such a pleasure to see something with a ridiculous premise function as a film you know like it doesn't have to be great but you're just like oh man you made some interesting choices like the pure two and a half star experience yeah it's great to watch people kind of like like we were saying about seeing plays and previews certain low budget or like sort of b b list level movies uh give you that same like oh shit we're doing it like experience and and i'll always watch something where there's a crazy sentient thing yeah it's just too much fun I just there's so many moments where (laughs) the tire like slightly turns and you're like oh he's thinking of something like it's it's (laughs) so funny how like it just becomes you know like a person a character after a while but yeah I think I think especially it's so important because when you see your like 35th Marvel film there is a structure that every single Marvel film adheres to And it is very freeing to watch something like rubber because you're like, oh, we can do anything. And we're choosing not to. We're choosing to do. I mean, partly that is the studio system that's not allowing people to do experimental stuff. But like they did it in rubber. They made it work. And we have this like cool fucking weird film now. And it's sort of like, let's do that more. (laughs) You know, it kind of it reminds me of a movie that I still haven't seen because I'm genuinely too afraid to see it. It's like a, uh, the movie Fall, where two girls, like young women, oh, get yes. stuck at the top yeah. of a giant tower. Mm-hmm. Um, because like heights, there's, I will just, I start to get pukey just thinking about being up high. Um, so, but yeah, they were just like, okay, let's make a movie where they're just stuck at the top of a tower. Yeah. And it can be, it can be that simple. Yeah. We don't get to get like crazy complicated with a plot. Um, so my final recommendation I wanted to get to, because you actually recommended it to me, uh, is Pontypool. Yay. I loved this. Uh, Speaking of like very experimental, weird films, um, 
This is a 2008 uh, Canadian horror film uh, directed by Bruce McDonald, written by Tony Burgess, uh, based on a 1995 novel. Uh, can you tell I'm reading the Wikipedia? Um, yes. <laughs> we got to get details right. So basically, it's uh, about this small town, uh, Pontypool in Ontario. Uh, and there is a, a very grizzled radio announcer um, who I kept calling uh, Amos. Um uh, named Grant Mazzy. And uh, he is just on his way to work to do his show. And uh, it immediately becomes clear that something weird is happening because this woman uh, like staggers up to his car and like knocks on the window and just wanders away. Very creepy <laughs> sequence. Well, sort of quietly babbling something, something. unintelligible. Right. So he gets to work and starts the show as usual. And they gradually learn throughout the film. We never see this happen. They just learn about it from callers, from um, one of their, their like in the field guys is like calling into the show that there has been an event that has happened where uh, people have like become zombies basically and are moving in a swarm <laughs> and killing people. And they are like, spouting gibberish the whole time and like repeating phrases and it's it's very disorienting and you don't know what's happening for a lot of the film and it is so disturbing that you never see it and what I find fascinating about this film is that it breaks one of the basic rules of screenplay writing which is you know show don't tell like this Pontypool is all telling and for the most part third act it gets crazy but uh it is just a lot of telling us what's happening and it's so well done and so disturbing. And I, it's fun. I learned that also through reading the Wikipedia page when they were making the film, they simultaneously did it as a radio play. Ooh. Yeah. I love that. It felt, so, it felt very welcome to Night Vale. Yeah. It has like the, it uses all of the lessons of, Orson Welles' War of the Worlds to just get so creepy. I mean, the concept of the mechanism by which people are being turned into zombies is so well conceived mm -hmm. and it's just so upsetting. Like, yes, I love the idea of like language as a virus yeah, is like yeah, so one of my most favorite concepts as like, it's a conceit that shows up in sci-fi a lot, but oh, it's just so well done. And so the performances, there's only a, it's a very small cast, but the performances of the main people are really spectacular. There's just the level, the way that they modulate the growing panic and trying to think through what to do. Oh, yes. it's just really well done. This is why I like, we need more horror nominations for acting. Cause Stephen McHattie is like, so good in this and he and he's someone that you have absolutely seen yes. in other a stuff he's a things. total that guy actor he's got um, one of the best voices yeah. his face is just like captivating and it is it is like 90 percent him close up on him on a mic learning about what's happening and it is captivating and as you said like the explanation of what is happening oftentimes in a film like this can get a little talky and a little like, okay, you know, we're getting technical and it, it's so satisfying <laughs> the explanation of what's happening. And then how he figures out how to counter it is fascinating. 
Oh, and it's really, it's just surprising. As you said, you know, it's all telling. It breaks so many rules, but it's just mesmerizing immediately. Like it makes the most of voices, language, tiny spaces, like sound. Which let me tell you, as both a former linguistics major and a podcaster, like when you recommended this to me and I started watching it, I was like, Meredith understands me. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and also you immediately got frustrated because you're like, oh, as a producer. She is so bad as a producer. The actress is great and she does a great job, but that is a bad producer. (laughs) And also (laughs) the sound engineer was driving me nuts too because uh, his, his peas were popping on the mic pretty hard. And I was like, nothing's being done to address this anyway. Um, I was so worried that you were going to hate it because you were angry about the the sound engineering element. You were just going to be take you out too much. And then you were like, oh, I love this. This is so good. I got over yeah, it. Yeah. yeah, it is. How did you hear about it? Uh, it was on lists of like high quality. I think I discovered it during the pandemic, honestly. It was on one of the streaming services. And as I had been searching around for underseen horror gems mm-hmm. i it popped up on lists like several different lists deep in the internet and decided to give it a try hell yeah um well we should wrap things up because meredith it sounds like is about to be abducted uh, <laughs> i don't know why the planes are like so hovering. loud today yeah like i was like waiting for it to clear <laughs> your building and i was like nope. nope it's just hovering uh no i seriously it's happened there's i don't know if there's just a bunch of planes coming into the airport or if the um the murder planes at the military airfield are doing a test today. I don't know what happened yesterday here, but the planes were flying. I think there was like a storm coming in. They were flying so low. And I'm just like, listen, I understand safety, but also can you not do this in New York? (laughs) Yeah. Well, I, you know, just fun fact today in the times, if you go to the website, the first article that you'll see is one about um, air traffic controllers being totally fucked, overworked and drunk. So cool. uh, Thriving society. It's definitely not going to make you feel good. (laughs) I'm I'm sure that won't end horribly. Um, Well, on that note, everybody have a wonderful rest of your weekend. If you're a fan of the show, you can go to lighttreason.news, smash that donate button or go to my Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Kilkenny. Either way, that's how we keep the lights on. It's how I can pay my co-hosts, all of that good stuff. Uh, If you have recommendations, questions, concerns, or if you just want to, like, tell me something uh, cool that happened to you, that's also allowed. Go to my Patreon. Leave it in the comments section. We love hearing from you. You can follow uh, Meredith and me on Blue Sky, on Letterboxd. I'm also still, unfortunately, on Twitter. It is a hellscape. It's 90% bots at this point. Um, I'm going down with the ship, everybody. I've decided. Uh, But yeah, follow us there. And yeah, am I forgetting anything? Oh, you know why I'm like having a hard time wrapping this up? I'm so used to throwing to Ron. Ooh, yeah. But now but we don't need to throw anymore. it around anymore. So on that note, uh yeah, have a wonderful rest of your weekend and while you're at it, that's it. Get outside and cause a little trouble. <laughs>